G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. Every time something doesn't go our way in the world, the first leaning is toward, oh, God's, God's lost in control. This is terrible. He, what's going on? He's gone on vacation. <laughs> I know what I'm talking about. This is the temptation. Now, how do I know that? Because that's what happens to me. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. One truth that will be delivered in love and compassion, connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. You make me Today. Today. Today with Jeff Fines. Hello, thanks for joining me for more messages from Pastor Jeff Fines. Today's message is the last in our series called Don't Panic, an in-depth look at the book of Revelation, covering the beast of the sea, the end times, and John's point of view and context at the time of writing Revelation. If you want to catch up on this series or other messages from Pastor Jeff, just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. Let's jump into this message now with Pastor Jeff as he reads from Revelation chapter 21. I'm reading out of Revelation 21. I'm going to read the first four verses. You've heard them before, but I've asked you to pretend like you've never heard these passages before and look at it with fresh eyes. And here's what we are told in scripture in the book of Revelation. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Foundations, folks, are critical, crucial to life, no doubt. And we've said in the past, what you believe determines what you're going to do and how you're going to live. It's that simple. What you believe about eternity, what you believe about the present world order, world system, what you believe about God or don't believe about God, all of that will impact everything you do, everything you believe, every decision that you make. Education will tell you that its purpose is to inform you. No, it's not. Its real purpose is to lay a foundation upon which you inform everything else. There is simply no such thing as a neutral education. 
Every teacher, every lecturer, every instructor, including myself, possesses a system of thought, a lens through which he or she views everything else. There's always a starting point. There's always a supposition. And that lens, that belief system, that foundation serves as the lens through which you interpret everything that happens in your life. Now, the Bible never denies this. In fact, the Bible tells you that if this world's going to make any sense at all, it must be viewed through what lens? We've talked about this in the past few series. It must be viewed through the reality of creation. We're not here by accident. Time plus matter plus chance cannot create a moral ethic, and neither can it create what we have in the here and now. There's a creator. Because of that, we're told, secondly, the Bible teaches us that the fall is a real thing, that people are fallen, that we're tainted creatures, all of us, and that 99.9% .9 of the pain and suffering in our world is not the result of a decision God made, but is a result of the decision man makes who's been given freedom to express himself. So the creation, the fall, and then the lens through which Christ followers look at everything ultimately is through the lens of redemption, that God is redeeming history is his story, and he's working everything, everything is flowing toward the ultimate culmination of history when Christ returns, and those things for which our heart has always longed, down deep inside, becomes a reality. Now, here's where I want to go with this. When you come to the end of the book of Revelation, like we've just done in uh, verse th or chapter 21, you discover a, a gold and the gold is this. There's only one way all of us are going to be able to be safe during this season of humanity. The only thing that can keep you safe in this world is that you develop a pessimism that you never thought yourself capable of, while at the same time developing an optimism that is, you would think in your mind, humanly impossible. If you hope to live safely in a world that features anti-God governments and anti-Christ religions, you're going to have to be more pessimistic than you ever thought you could be, and you're going to have to be more optimistic than you ever thought possible. Now, how is that possible? First, you've got to be wonderfully pessimistic, and that's so hard for me. I detest pessimistic people. I always have. They call themselves realists. But in reality, they, they, don't, they won't do anything because they, they always have it mapped out why they're going to fail. Have you ever been around a person like this? They, it's, it's, I can't even talk right now that I'm, I'm so upset with these types of people. I don't want to be around. They suck the life right out of you. It's like, it's like that iconic character in Winnie the Pooh, Eeyore. Remember Eeyore? He's always down in the dumps. He goes around saying the same thing all the time. Well, it's not much of a tale, but I'm sort of attached to it. <laughs> a couple years ago, I heard the story of the optimist brother and the pessimist brother, and the optimist brother had had enough of his pessimistic brother, so he goes out, trains his dog to do something very special. He comes back, he's going to show his pessimistic brother. Takes a stick, throws it into the wheat field, dog goes out, gets it, brings it back. The pessimist brother says, anybody can do that. And the optimist brother says, yeah, but watch this. And he throws the stick out on the middle of the pond, and the dog walks on water, gets it, and brings it back. <laughs> And the pessimist says, can't swim, can he? <laughs> These types of people, I, I think they say that you should always borrow money from pessimists because they never expect you to pay it back. That, these kinds of people, 
But do you know that one of the complaints that I hear most often from skeptics is the complaint that we Christians are so negative, that all you talk about is sin and wickedness and gloom and doom and not to mention judgment and the end of the world and the apocalypse. Why can't you Christ followers just have a more positive, upbeat attitude? Well, there's some truth in that. In fact, the wife of the president of Harvard University, now we're talking to Harvard, and I don't know if you know this, but it was founded on on Christian principles. It was meant to be a place that trained the mind to see everything through the university, one universe through the mind of God. Now, it's changed a lot over the last how many years, but back when it had a strong, firm affirmation of creation, fall, and redemption, the president's wife, the president's wife, Harvard University, who was a faithful Anglican, was bothered by I don't know if you have any Anglicans in the room or listening, but there's an Anglican prayer book. And you go through the Anglican prayer book. And one of those prayers in the book uh, has to do with you humbling yourself and basically referring to yourself as a miserable offender. And so the president's wife, a faithful Anglican, was bothered by this prayer in the book. And she wrote to a friend of hers who shared her religious views. And she asked this question, do you actually every week get down on your knees and confess you are a miserable offender? That's so demeaning to the intellectual elite. Do you really do that? And the response came back, me nor any of my children would ever do something like that. This is part of the problem the world has with us. Why are you Christians so pessimistic? Miserable offenders, really? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretched people. How about Isaac Watts, when I surveyed the wondrous cross? Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? That's not good for your (laughs) self-esteem. So on the one hand, stay with me now, on the one hand, people on the outside see the Christian view of life is too negative. There's all these don'ts and it makes life dull and all these warnings of sin, hell, and judgment that just makes us all afraid and robs us of a philosophy of fun. Now, on the other hand, others see us Christ followers as far too optimistic. Karl Marx called religion the opiate of the people. He said, you Christ followers, you go and sing and dance around all happy. He must have been a Pentecostal. But it does not, it does not, it does no rather real good. You are disconnected from reality. You live in a dream world, disassociated from the concrete problems of the world. You Christ followers have your head in the clouds or the sand. And you, you talk about pie in the sky by and by. You're, you're unfoundedly optimistic. So which is it? Well, what's the answer? We're both. We are. And until you truly understand that, you're never going to be safe. You're never going to be safe, and you're going to go up like this. And when Vladimir Putin invades Ukraine, you're going to think it's all over, and there's no use living anymore. What's the world come to? But if you remain incredibly pessimistic, and yet audaciously optimistic, you'll be safe in this world. Now, let's go back. Have you ever read the Bible? I'm assuming a lot of you have. We are pessimistic because people will say to me, Pastor Jeff, I don't like the Bible because it's filled with violence, hatred, and judgment. Well, of course it is. That's what people are like. (laughs) This is history, not legend. You know, when you read a book of legend, the heroes do the right thing all the time. They look really good. But the Bible isn't a legend or mythology. The Bible is about real people. 
So in the Bible, it has some of the most cowardly, egocentric, petty-minded, brutal people you're ever going to find because that's real life. That's how it really is. It gives you an accurate picture of man. He's corrupt. His heart is wicked. His love of money and power is the root of all evil. In fact, if you ever meet an honest Christian, that person will tell you that he or she has no idea of what their own hearts are capable of given the right situation. Malcolm Muggeridge was a brilliant journalist. Brilliant. Died, I believe, in 1990. He was on assignment one time in India. Muggeridge goes to a river for a swim. Let me read to you what he writes later. As I entered the water, my eyes fell on a woman bathing. I felt an impulse to go to her and seduce her, just as King David felt when he saw Bathsheba. Temptation storming in my mind, I began swimming toward her. The words of my wedding vows came to mind, but I responded by just going faster. Does that sound familiar? The voice of allurement called out, stolen water is sweet. That's Proverbs 9, 17. And I swam more furiously still, but when I pulled up near the woman and she turned toward me, I saw she was a leper. This creature grinned at me, showing a toothless mask. My first reaction was to despise her. What a dirty, lecherous woman, I thought. But then it crashed in on me that it was not the woman who was lecherous. It was my own heart. He goes on to say, this is precisely the teaching of the Bible about the moral and spiritual condition of men and women. Our hearts are corrupt, our minds are depraved, and our desires are enslaved to the passions of sin. I hope that by now, and by the way, we're family now. I mean, how many, I've been here 13 years. I've already told you I'm not going anywhere. So you'll have to listen to these sermons till the day I die. And so by now we know and we agree that Christians believe that the seeds of some of the worst atrocities are in all of our hearts, that we're no better than anybody else. And the point is this, no other religion or philosophy speaks about the human heart the way Jesus did, the way the Bible does. Nothing even comes close to it. We need remedial help, we cannot heal ourselves. So when you hear, I don't know if you've seen the news lately, when you hear about two ladies who befriended a 70-year-old lady at church and one prayed with her while the other stole her wallet, when you hear a mob of junior hires attack a coach because he asked them to stop doing donuts in the parking lot, junior hires, we're talking about 10, 11, 12 year old. When you hear that GoFundMe pages have been used to fuel someone's thirst for extreme wealth rather than helping someone in genuine need. When you hear of a mother just a few months ago who decided she did not want her baby, so she took this wonderful bundle of new life to a dumpster and dumped him to die a slow and painful death of exposure. All she had to do was take him to the fire station. At least she could do that. So we Christ followers hear that. We are saddened, we're appalled, we're heartbroken, and we even fight against those injustices. But the reality is this as well. Yep, that's the story of humanity. The heart of man is wicked beyond belief. And then, and then there's what's going on in this country right now. And you know, I... I I stay out of politics. I, this is not the place for that. At the same time, I have a responsibility to speak up for morality. That I'll do no matter who's in charge or who's in office. Our politicians and representatives on both sides of the aisle seem to have come to the conclusion that you and I are stupid and we don't know what's good for us. And the intellectual elite, which I've been warning you about for the last 20 years because of my work on university campuses, truly believe that we've been idiotized and therefore we have become imbecilic in all of our thoughts and actions. 
so that a considerable portion of the United States, that is the population, we the people, cannot be trusted to make good decisions anymore on behalf of the world, the nation, the state, or even our own families. Now, of course, they somehow managed to escape this imbecility and they see themselves as our saviors. So in separate interviews, it appears that many of them will give us the illusion of democracy, but while they're doing that, they will try at every level to circumvent democracy for the greater good. They're martyrs while claiming that they're protecting democracy. Now, here's what I find interesting. And it took me a long time as a Christ follower to see the Bible's teaching on this. As I'm up here pointing the finger to those bad people out there, the Bible tells me that I am just as bad, if not worse, and would probably do the same thing if I had their power. Or at least be strongly tempted to do the same thing if I was in their position. The heart is wicked and at enmity with God. And the more power I get, the Bible tells me, the more elitist I will come. There's no one righteous, no, not one. Do you remember what happened in Matthew 20? This is one of my favorite stories. I think it's humorous, but it's sad at the same time. The Bible tells us in Matthew 20, verse 20 through 28, that the mother of Zebedee's son, so this is James and John, come to Jesus, and James and John evidently came and knelt down beside mom while, he was, while she was talking to Jesus. You stand here, boys, I'll do the talking. Jesus said, what do you want? She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And then the boys speak up. We can. We can. No, you can't. You don't even know what the cup is. Jesus said to them, well, you will indeed drink from my cup. They are going to be martyred and they were. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. Verse 24 says, when the 10 heard about this, they were indignant. Why? Because they wish they had a thought of it first. Jesus called them together and said, guys, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and high officials, their high officials exercise authority over them. But that's not the way it's going to be with you, right? Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must first be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The problem in our world today is that our leaders are not serving, they're lording. And I wonder why Jesus didn't say to them, you know, guys, you've been around me this long and you still don't get this. No, because our hearts are wicked and we are blind to this reality. Now, here's the point. Where are you going with this passage? Let me tell you. Until you understand the pessimism of the Bible, you can never be safe, and here's why. Because our pessimism keeps us from being duped. It protects us from demagoguery. Someone all of a sudden who comes along and rallies our emotions claiming they can save us from all this evil, corrupt system in the world. No, you can't. The night before, now listen carefully, Don't go out here and say, Pastor Jeff said this. The night before Donald Trump was elected in the election, uh, and it was late at night, I was in London. Premier Radio called the hotel and said, look, would you be willing to come in tonight? I mean, it was late, at least on my time. Would you be willing to come in? By the way, you can find this interview on YouTube. If you just go to YouTube, Premier Radio, Jeff Vines, it's still up. They've not taken it down. Would you come in? We'd like to ask you some questions 
representing the American evangelical community. So I came into Premier Radio. It was, as soon as I walked in there, the lady who was interviewing me was incredibly aggressive. The first question said, who do you think is going to win the election tomorrow or tonight? I said, well, I'm not, I'm not sure, but I would say that there's a good chance Donald Trump will win it. Boom, she came after me. I said, well, well, wait a minute now. You didn't ask me who I was going to vote for. You asked me who I thought was going to win the election. And I just told you, probably Donald Trump. Well, how could you Christ followers vote for Donald? I said, I just told you, you asked me who I thought was going to win. You didn't ask me who I thought Christians were going to vote for. You didn't ask me for where the church stood on. You just asked me who I thought was going to win. Now, you know how it ended up. So I looked like a genius the next morning. And they called and asked me to come back in and do the interview again. I mean, I looked like I was the most brilliant man on the planet. But she asked me at the end of that interview, why do you say that? When I gave her this response, it really quietened her spirit. I said, because evangelicals feel like they're voting for the less of two evils. Now listen, if you understand the biblical view of man, you understand that the choice in every election is always between two sinners. Always. God told Israel, you don't want a king. All kings are flawed. The problem with government is not merely its policies but that flawed human beings who do not respond well to power are in charge. No matter what party is in power, it's full of sin. We know this because each party points out the sins of the other. Yet for some uncanny reason, each party's blind to its own violations, right? Christians have a wonderful, beautiful hesitancy because we realize that the election is about voting for the wiser sinner. And it's hard. Christians are politically active. They use their voice to defend the rights of the innocent. We help create legislation that prevents the government from overstepping their boundaries. Yes. But our pessimism concerning man stays in place. And therefore we are safe from being duped by a self-proclaimed savior, no matter who he or she is, that somehow they're going to make everything perfect. When you get in office, you're still a sinner. I'll pray for you. I'll pull for you but I'm watching you (laughs) because if I were the president, you'd need to watch me too. Do you know why so many Christians lose or think it's the end of the world when their leader loses an election? One, the the denial of a sovereign God. It's interesting how God is sovereign when my candidate wins, but if my candidate doesn't win, the devil did it. Second, their saviors come in the form of human leaders. No man or woman can save you. And third, their emotions are still connected primarily to the ebb and flow of the world. Now, how do I know that? Because that's what happens to me and you. I know what I'm talking about. This is the temptation. Every time something doesn't go our way in the world, the first, the first leaning is toward, oh, God's, God's lost control. This is terrible. He, what's going on? He's gone on vacation. <laughs> While the world is prime for hero worship, Christ followers know better. And as a result, we'll be safe because we cannot be duped by the demagogues. Did you ever consider what Jesus said in John 2, 23? Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all people. They loved his teaching, his miracles and hospitality, but he trusted none of them because he knows the heart of man. 
You say, listen, this is not a political sermon. You say, well, it sounds like it. Just hold on. You can prefer politicians and parties over another, but when you place your hope in them, you're foolish. They're all sinners. Pray for them. Vote as ethically as you know possible. But both, both are ruled by hearts. Hearts that tend to move away, the more power, the more money, the more position. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. In your heart and in your soul, you know deep down this is true. Something resonates in you that there is a discontent. There's something nothing on this earth can satisfy. And you keep trying to find it. There's a sense of belonging that you don't have that you want so desperately. There's a type of love that no matter how much you love your wife and your wife loves you, there's just still something missing and you know it. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au. 